Engage. This is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I am the one who knocks. Hi, I'm Jessica Kate Richards, and I'm an academic who studies television. I'm Ashley Zanter, and I'm an academic who works in cultural studies. And I'm Scott Nielsen, and I once also faced a demigorgon, but I went to the dermatologist and it cleared it right up. And this is Universal TV. <laughs> Today on Universal TV, we're going to be talking about the first season of the Netflix smash hit Stranger Things. For those of you who may have not watched it for a little while, it's about a group of young boys in Hawkins, Indiana, who are searching for their friend, Will Byers, who is trapped in the Upside Down. That's a weird summary. I mean, it's, it's also weird... accurate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's it kind a- of a weird show. It's it's a strange show. Oh. There's some shows with strange things, okay. but this show has no, stop what you're doing. Oh things. my god. Please stop right now. Roll credits. Uh so so it's an yeah, it's it's a kind of a crazy plot. It's interesting and the setting is pretty unique in terms of uh the kind of aesthetic that it brings to the show. Um so what do you guys think of this one? You know, were you big fans of it? I'm, it's it's had a pretty big cultural impact. Uh, it's one of the Netflix shows that I think has had uh, a lot of attention. And I'm, it is I'm, the most watched Netflix original. Oh, okay. Yep. So it's surpassed Orange is the New Black and House of Cards. And I think that has something to do with the fact that it's multi generational and some of that. But like, what do you think works about this show? Why why do you think it has that broad appeal? So I think the show is a really good marriage of a lot of different genre tropes. I think it's an homage to a lot of 80s films and a lot of 80s horror, but it it does its own thing. It's very charming. It's got a great cast. It's well acted. The plot is interesting and different, that it's not a stereotype or it's not a cliche that we go to. And it, it can appeal to people who grew up in the 80s, who are just nostalgic for the 80s, people who never lived in the 80s were born in the 90s but they just have a weird fascination with the 80s like it it like you said it's very multi-generational so i guess uh, i'll just go ahead and level with you guys that i'm the one person in the world who doesn't care for stranger things oh you forgot the 11 other people on the internet <laughs> yeah, yeah. hey hey let me say this. we have a support group. ashley uh, you're one of a kind <laughs> because people usually don't like to repeat mistakes <laughs> i hate you no um <laughs> No, so I just, I guess my problem was I didn't think it was a bad show. Like, I'm not going to sit here and think that and like try and argue against it as a thing that should exist. I think it's fine. But I also don't think it does anything particularly innovative or interesting that hasn't been done by movies better already well, that t- were made in the actual 80s instead of just being nost- uh, nostalgia for nostalgia's sake is sort of how I felt about it and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that so I'm not because I'm, there's plenty of things that do that on several different levels we do it with the 50s all the time but uh, I just didn't I didn't particularly see anything about this that I thought was enough to I don't know justify the cultural value but that's just that was uh, clearly well, I seem I am in the vast minority uh, in that thinking. Well, so. do you think that plays into it that the hype and the uh, fervor for Stranger Things told you, oh, this must be culturally important, and you didn't agree with that, so that is what you're kind of rallying against, 
Or do you think that if you had gone in without hearing anything? I think it's possible. I I did intentionally. um, I didn't watch this when it came out and everybody told me that I should go watch that, that, that this would be right up my alley. And so I heard that for like a year before I actually sat down to watch it for for this podcast episode. Um, And I think maybe I went into it with a lot of that. But also, I read the synopsis for Stranger Things several times before it gained the traction that it had because it took a little while for it to gain the popularity. It did. Yeah, it was kind of a sleeper hit. Yeah. And and I read the synopsis for it like three or four different times and never clicked play and I think that you know even though it's popular now I still wasn't going to click play until I had to until we forced you to until yeah you need to stop it (laughs) I'm sorry we encourage you to do cool stuff yeah we pick great shows just sat through Riverdale for you yeah I sat through The Handmaid's Tale so we're done (laughs) and this is us that's a culturally acclaimed, significant television show. Right. Well, so <laughs> thank you. I wanna, thank you very much. So I want to. I want to go back a little bit. I want to ask Ashley. So you said there are movies in the '80s that mm-hmm. have done different things, and you said nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. Yeah. Can you kind of elaborate on yeah. that? Yeah, I'm just, when you look at Stranger Things, there are so many, there's, right, there's three main storylines that are happening. You've got the young boys searching for their friend, you've got the love triangle, and then you've got the parent drama that's going on with Joyce and with Hopper, the police captain, right? Joyce is Will's mother, you've got Hopper, the police captain, who are banding together to try and find Will, which is also what the kids are doing, but they're doing it separately until they're not. But... I guess when I was watching this, I'm trying to figure out what this show is doing that the Goonies didn't already do better, that Say Anything didn't already do better, that Nightmare on Elm Street didn't already do better, that E.T. didn't already do better. And I know this is supposed to be a pastiche of of this sort of like everything that happened in the 80s. Let's all push it together and just live the 80s for a few hours. But I felt like I had seen all of this already. See, but I disagree because I think that Stranger Things subverts a lot of those things. For example, the Goonies are the ones who accomplish everything, but the children don't actually accomplish that much in the show. Like, we think they do because they investigate and they figure stuff out, but Joyce actually accomplishes a lot of the work. She figures out the mystery. She is trying to get Hop to listen to her. Hop eventually does. He's investigating, figuring out the conspiracy. In a lot of 80s movies that are very driven by kids, and even out movies outside the 80s, it's the adults are all inept and dumb, and the kids somehow have figured out at 11, year old, at 11 years old how to be investigative journalists. Mm. But the adults are as success, as successful, if not more successful, than the kids are. Well, and, and that but makes, the teenagers are also very successful. Right. Almost like people can be successful when they try, and they're not like just dumb props for the movie. Or the TV show. Well, and I, I mean, I think it's interesting that you bring those those couple of films up because part part of the thing for me that was interesting about this particular show is the way that it causes stress in its viewership. Um, partly because, like, in, in those older shows, like in Goonies, I can't recall... There are so many films from the 80s about kids doing stupid stuff behind their parents' back, uh-huh. um, you know, and, and usually over a weekend or 24 hours or something. It's it's all wound up and it's so chaotic. There's so much yelling in those stories. There's so much uh, drama surrounding these kinds of interactions. And Ferris actually, Bullerian type antics. Yeah, just an, an utter chaos that like. I have a really hard time watching something like The Goonies from the 80s because I'm so nervous the whole time. And for me, this show didn't any get anywhere near 
that kind of level of intensity. And it was partly because I really enjoyed what the, the, the decisions that the kids were actually making, right? They were, they were interesting people in and of themselves and they weren't just yelling or saying weird fart jokes. It was, there, <laughs> there were was, fart jokes. There were fart jokes, but they were not just fart jokes. Right. But each kid had an individual body personality humor. and they made choices that made sense. Right. They weren't just dumb kids who opened the door because they did. It's like, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't know what's going on with this girl. Let's leave. Like, not. I never felt frustrated with the decisions they made. I might have been like, oh, they got to convince him. But I, I got why, where their decisions came from. I, I thought there was a more sophisticated irony than the chaos that you find in a typical 80s film. Uh, even in like E.T. and some of those shows where there's just a lot of yelling. Yeah. Uh, for... Well, but I think that's the refinement that comes with nostalgia, right? Instead of actually being the 80s and having some of the raw mistakes that come with that, we get to romanticize the 80s into what people remember through rose-colored but, glasses. But I don't think it's a very flattering romanticization. Romanticization? Romanticization. I think for the kids it is. I think a lot of it for the kids <laughs> it is because those kids kind of can, they have a run of the place. I mean, the latchkey kid trope that we've got going throughout this entire series is that those kids are just like we need to go so let's hop on our bikes and go yeah but i think that the the problem with that is that there's real danger at the center of this narrative right um and this is and yeah they totally can do that but not really because when one of them does that he gets snatched up into the upside down that's the whole plot is that when you let kids bike home in the middle of the night they get snatched up Except for when all the other kids go biking in the middle of the night and nothing happens. Well, but, stuff but, happens. But, well, and poor Barb, right? And like, <laughs> and this is where I'm going to come because her her demise very strongly points to like there is an actual horror at the center of this show that like the Goonies pirate ship never quite touches. You know, th- this this show is about how. Um, how not paying attention to what other people are doing uh, causes a, a traumatic damage that, that controls all the people around in this community, right? And and the ways that they're interacting and talking with each other and the ways that information is segmented and fragmented throughout this narrative, for me, had such an interesting political resonance uh, and, and sort of a, a conversation about, like, what pe- what things people know and how helpful that information is um, that I thought was just completely fascinating, right? And it's constantly pointing fingers at different generations and calling them out for their crap. And I haven't seen TV shows that have been really willing to do that or to defend, like, our Gen Xers, you know? And this is a show that is actually doing that work and, and proving that these people have value and i think that that's really interesting in the current television landscape that has shamed the most recent generation you know in a terrible way we're the worst we are (laughs) yeah we ruin everything um and so so for me that was really refreshing right because the motivations of these characters their their anxieties their frustrations make sense and are ground in a way that i think uh, there's been a real division. And this show tries really hard to conquer that division or at least talk about what's problematic and what's keeping us apart. And yeah. I thought that that was really interesting and fascinating. Yeah. And I think the characters are just are more interesting than the stereotype they're referencing. For example, I, I want to use Jonathan and Stephen as contrasts. Mm-hmm. So we start with Jonathan as sort of the weird, 
older brother who doesn't seem to be well understood, but we think's got a heart of gold, loves his younger brother, is really concerned with his disappearance, and likes photography, but is also kind of a creep. Because he <laughs> does, like, the fact of the matter is he does take photos in a very voyeuristic way. Uh-huh. And it's creepy. Like, if if you got a, a shot of yourself topless in a window and you saw that, like, you're not going to think, I bet he loves his little brother. You're going to think, Jesus, this guy's going to rape me and murder me and kill me and do all these horrible things. And he's not as just the simple of, like, the heart of gold guy we're supposed to root for. It's more complicated than that. And then we have Steven, who is the douchebag boyfriend jock guy who gets laid out, you know, in a fight. Not just by Jonathan, but then by his even douchier friend. And eventually has to come around to being like, hey, like, I've been wrong. I've been a jerk. I care about this relationship. I care about you. And I want to make it work. He makes up with Jonathan in a sense, you know, gets, you know, helps get a new camera and patches up his relationship. And that's not the traditional narrative that we see in a lot of media, especially from the 80s. So, so I feel like that there are some things in this show that kind of help us push these sort of interesting relationships. You know, one of the things that stands out to me, too, is just how defined the characters are. I mean, the the imagery that's used to to look at these these people in this community and in this town and be able to tell one from another. um, They're just not it doesn't feel like a generic hot person on the CW. For me, that was the other really fascinating part about this. They're so distinct, um, and it's so easy to remember them. And, in fact, the performances lend themselves to that because I I, and everybody else talked about this as well, but I think that the... the child acting in the show is really fantastic. No, I agree that the child, I think the child acting, there, there were some moments that actually did catch me uh, when Mike and Dustin are by the quarry and it looks like the bully kid is going to cut Dustin. And so he has to, Mike has to jump off the cliff and Eleven shows up and saves the day, which we can talk about in just a second. But Mike has like tears in his eyes for a second when he sees her walking up. And, and there, there are moments where I'm like, you're very young. That's very impressive. But I was also like very aware of what I was looking at. And and so I think that's for me, I'm not denying the actors their performances because I, I don't think I have a leg to stand on. But I guess in a lot of ways, I didn't necessarily buy into some of the situations that I found the characters in, like the love, the forced love triangle, because you're right. He is. Jonathan is kind of pervy. He takes that weird topless picture of her in a window and it's it's weird. But then she kind of just gets over it. And Ah, partners up with him. And then when she's giving him his camera, she kisses him on the cheek. And that's totally setting up a season two. Who is she actually going to pick? Because she picks Steve at the end of season one because he's wearing the reindeer Christmas sweater at their house. But she kissed Jonathan on the cheek when Steve wasn't looking. And so there's just sort of these, these things where I'm like... Have we not gotten past this? Because, like, if this show is supposed to be doing something new and it's not just buying into the same 80s stuff that we've seen over and over and over again, I would have expected more. Well, okay, so let's talk about one of the ways that it subverts tropes, when particularly surrounding sex, right? So mm-hmm. in this particular show, uh, the characters that have sex, like normally in a horror movie, would be the ones who get punished. They don't do that in this one, right? It's these other people uh, who are like literally innocent victims in the situation who end up with that. So I can't, I, I disagree with you. I think it does push those boundaries and it does create tension in those spaces uh, by subverting those kinds of expectations. In, in fact, the the moral complexity 
of the voyeurism and the relationship with Steve and how violent and aggressive he is, I think, says something about how women relate to men. Right. Like, what are the options? What are the choices that are available to them? There isn't a knight in shining armor. We're just people. And and sometimes we're good and sometimes we're bad and sometimes we get caught. And that's just how it is. Right. And sometimes when you sit alone in a pool, you get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just Barb. Don't sit, just don't sit on a diving board by yourself at night. Right. Ever. It's a really bad idea. You <laughs> right. could get eaten. Well, and and the women in the show, I guess this is something I also struggled with personally. Um, Joyce, right? Joyce Byers, Winona writer. I was reading an article on Vulture, and it said that before, when, when they were originally developing this series, Winona Ryder hadn't been cast as Joyce yet, and Joyce had a very specific character designation where she was supposed to be this kind of, like, trash-talking, Long Island, badass single mother. And then they cast Winona Ryder. They threw all of that out the window. And so basically what we have is Winona Ryder being Winona Ryder as this kid's mom. And, ju- and, it's, just, and it's just to go, we got this. The 80s chick, guys. Do you get it? It's the chick from hey, the 80s. I would argue she's early 90s. Uh, I would also <laughs> argue it's Winona. I don't know oh where this Winona coming from. Whatever. <laughs> but I, I, here's the thing. I thought Winona Ryder was the best part oh, of the show. No. I loved her. I loved I, her character. She was so emotional. And you know what? She may not have been a Long Island trash talking because that's a weird, that's a stereotype. That's dumb to me. But she was a badass. She was the fierce mom. And maybe it's because, like, I saw my mom in her being, like, that fierce, like, my kid is in danger and I will destroy everything in my path <laughs> kind of person. That's so generic, though. Right, no, but oh, oh, I because that's what mothers do. It's not com- But not all the time. So, but I, I do want to say that, like, I know Ashley is, you know, has a good point here. She goes, like, how nuanced or uh, transformational is Winona Ryder's performance in this particular show? And, and I would argue, I think you're right. I think she does play to her strengths um, in this particular thing but what was fascinating to me about this was that there was a an sort of inverse in in the expectation of um her poverty mm-hmm. so she as a as a single mother uh with two kids at home you know that there's a sense that like she would be more negligent but she is by far the best parent in the entire show like bar none everybody else doesn't know their kids mm-hmm. doesn't know what their kids who they are, what they care about, what they're passionate about. I mean, the conversations that uh, the boys have with with their mothers as they're trying to decide what to do, right? They they don't actually get the kind of... She knows who they are. You know, when they sit down to dinner at the end of the series and they're talking about, you know, what's coming up and what's happening, she's totally engaged with her son. Mm -hmm. And she never gives up. And I actually thought it was just a really fascinating really important thing for her to have that role because we always look at the working mother as the negligent mother Uh and she's not she is by far the best parent and for me that was so significant and so important uh just in television history i felt like we never get that. We never get that. It's always the working psychologist mother who is distant. And I guess aloof. I'm just wondering, though, why the best mother has to also be the most hysterical and has to be the most like 
she always has crazy Winona eyes. But she's right not... all the time, and, and I think that's part of it for me. Is like I can't, uh, I can't see Joy Spires for the Winona writer behind her. Like I, it's just not there because every time I see her, it's the same. Every emotion to me that comes out of her is the same emotion. It's some mixture of sad hysteria. But that part of what is so fascinating about her as a character because she is actually horrified and she's actually right right the things that happen within this series when, when she is expressing those that sense of hysteria and that sense of paranoia it always pays off she's never wrong about how bad the situation actually is when her eyes are bugged out it's because her son is missing and potentially murdered you know that like None of her feelings are invalidated. She is right. she is paranoid for a reason. But she's never taken seriously. And, and, that's, and that's frustrating. And it's frustrating for, for, and I think so, again, so important, because when we get characters that are uh, female, that are, are looked at as emotional, right? That th- those emotional, that that's ne- usually seen as sort of a flaw or a, a, a character. Like we, we in our society, we privilege logic and masculinity. And so the fact that her sort of feminine intuition actually works in this situation to everyone's benefit. And she's the only person in the town who really has a sense of what's going on. Um, and, and that she's profoundly sad about the loss of her son. I think that these are really important moments for women in television. Like, I, I think that that is really significant and we shouldn't shake our head at it. And I think it also speaks to a larger sense of, you know, impending doom that Stranger Things kind of taps into in our contemporary culture. Right. That there there is something happening in this space, in this town that is tied to larger institutional pressures that is pushing down on them. And there are only some people who are aware enough to figure it out. Well, so the one female character in the show then that does embrace the logic and the masculinity that you're that you're you're arguing that we privilege in our society is Eleven. And Eleven is supposed to be kind kind of our hero. Right. Because Will almost doesn't matter. Will Byers, the kid trapped in the Upside Down, is almost irrelevant for most of the show. He's in like 10 minutes of the show. Yeah. And so Eleven seems to be like our secondary protagonist next to Mike, right? Mike the Mike Wheeler, who's the one who's very protective of her, the other young boy. And my problem with Eleven, um, and she's a child, so I'm not going to pretend like, you know, she needs to have it all figured out because I didn't when I was 11. But... Don't she's lie. kind of you were together <laughs> you were hip to it i she's just basically um the i mean i'm going to use jessica's term the deus ex 11 of this show where every time something seems like it's going to go so wrong that we can't come back from it 11 comes in moves something with her mind fixes it and then we're fine again mm-hmm. and and I wanted her to be more, and, and it's almost like they were trying to have her be more by developing a lot of pathos around her character. You feel bad for her. She's been incarcerated. She's been used and brutalized by this uh, corporate no, government entity. We're not exactly sure what it is, but she's she doesn't do enough outside of her day saving that I like. I don't. I just. I felt like it was such a missed opportunity. But it was also, I mean, if you think about, okay, so early 90s, you got stuff like Jurassic Park, yeah. right? Where you have the, these characters who are interacting. And, and, like, what I remember from Jurassic Park of the girl in that show is that she stood around and went like this. Ah! Right? <laughs> and Eleven is not 
that. You know, she she is powerful. She is intelligent. She is so much cooler than all of the boys. Um, and so, I mean, I understand that you're kind of like, she feels a little empty to me and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do with her as a character. I'm hoping that they're going to develop that way more in season two. But I, I think at the same time that that badassery is really significant. Again, it's, it is a girl, right? And we don't even get this with Buffy the Vampire but, Slayer. But almost not. She, I mean, what about her as feminine? So she, there's that episode and it's... She's deeply masculinized. It's my least favorite part of the show. Like, I, I didn't actually enjoy the way that they did this because apparently uh, the pressures that we feel about our bodies are, like, so rampant in society that even if you've been, like, incarcerated in a cell, <laughs> if you're out there for, like, 30 minutes, you're going to be like... Want to be pretty. Girls, pretty, right? <laughs> like, so I didn't actually enjoy that part, but, but there is, like... Th- that sense around her, her trying to discover her own body and her trying to understand her role, th- they do try at least to kind of talk about that. And so her femininity is an important part of her character. She just doesn't know what to do with it yet. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's, I think it's kind of fascinating, you know, as she loses her wig or it becomes more and more rumpled and aggressive, you know, crazy as the show progresses until it's finally gone again, uh, you know, we get this, this sense of her trying to understand how she fits in. And I, I think that that's not necessarily a bad place for feminism to be right now, because that's essentially, you know, the point that we've arrived at is like, hey, adopting masculine traits isn't enough. What's valuable about femininity besides that? And I feel like this show generally embraces that, right? It embraces the power of uh, an attentive mother. It embraces the, the ability for a woman to be emotional and soft and interesting and also be incredibly strong and cooler than the guys that surround her. But she was also so predictable. Like, I always knew what she was going to do. It was almost... Because they keep referencing her as a superhero. Well, she is. And we talk about kind of these superhero cliches. And at a certain point, even though this series is only eight episodes, I was... Every time something was going wrong, I knew Eleven was going to show up and save the day. I stopped being concerned about the safety of the kids because I knew that she was there. I knew when they were in the classroom with the Demigorgon and she was laying on the table, like, almost dead, she was going to somehow miraculously come back to power and defeat it. I was not worried about those kids for a second, even with the weird David and Goliath thing that they did for, like, five seconds. But they also had... Yeah, that was actually pretty funny. They're (laughs) like, we did it! And everyone's like, no, you didn't. You didn't. And that kind of goes up to Jess's thing is the guys think... Yeah, we did yeah. it. Behind every group of successful men is a woman who actually did all the work. <laughs> um, but a, a big part of that is that they set it up like Eleven can do all these amazing things and the cost to her is a bloody nose. It's like, cool, I'll take I'll take a bloody nose for super awesome telekinetic powers. And then they say, cool, but this time she's gone. But she's not. I know, but- I know. <laughs> But there's an an implied cost. There is definitely a cost. Did you not see Will in the bathroom? Yeah, but we know he's going to be fine. No, he's not. Oh, sorry. I thought you were talking about Mike when he's crying when he saw Eleven explode. No, he's not. So this kid, you know, he went to the Upside Down. He is changed forever. I guess I'm just, I I don't buy into the idea that they're going to kill Will Byers in season two. No, no, they're not going to kill him. He's become a, a vehicle for absolute destruction. And that's part of what's terrifying about him, right? Because and he's because, so cute. Because we love him. Because you know, when, I don't. When 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 Will says at the at the very beginning of the show, when he says he got me, he's dead. 
Like, he dies in that moment. That kid is gone. And we never get him back. And I think that there is a real cost at the center of the show. And, and they keep bringing that back up again, right? Like, with um, Hooper and his lost child, right? These are... And it's kind of interesting to me. One of the things that was a little bit odd about this particular show was that they use the name Byers all the time. And I thought it was kind of fascinating because there's a famous murder victim uh, from the early 90s who was... Uh, out riding bikes uh, with his friends in um, Memphis. And he and three other boys were hogtied and murdered and thrown into a river. And his last name was Byers. Mm-hmm. And so every single time I think of Will Byers, I hear I see that that kid. And I remember that story. And in particular, you know, there's some anxiety in this show about the latchkey kids having free reign uh-huh. and about, like, parents not having control over their children and sort of the ways that we've become helicopter parents is really different kind of. And it sort of makes us go. I had an aunt who kept having to leave the room during Stranger Things because she was like, I don't know if the kids are going to be OK. Like, I can't watch this. I don't know. Are the kids going to be all right? And I think that for me, the show very, very consciously takes that emotional connection between these kids and makes it so that we we absolutely feel the danger that's at the center of the narrative. Um, I, I mean, I think I I was so terrified for them. You know, when they pulled Will's body from the lake... You know, that the emotion, the way that everybody handles that in the town, when we find out later that it's not his body, it's interesting because he's never come back from the upside down. And so it'll be interesting to see how they handle that in season two. So that's that's my response. I've, I feel like there is an emotional center to the narrative and the stakes are really, really high, particularly for these people. And they're not going to be let off the hook. I mean, we're, we're looking at season two as a potential apocalypse, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that that's that's something that's going to be really interesting to navigate especially when it is a high school teen drama mm-hmm. uh for for most of it so i i just think they for me personally watching this this show um they didn't spend enough time on will for me to care that he was missing and he's he is you, you mentioned this earlier he's only in the show for about 10 minutes he's there for a couple minutes at the beginning of the first episode and he's there for a couple minutes at the end of the last episode and then you see kind of glimpses of him once in a while through a wall or something but that's it. And so, I mean, I, I mean, I felt I felt more of a connection to Barb than I ever did to Will. And Will's supposed to be the one who matters. And and I think for me that the entire show is revolving around bringing this kid home. Everything ultimately comes back to him and his person and his survival. And it was so hollow for me right, that, but- that the stakes never seemed high for it. Like even with the emotional reactions of his mother and his brother and and these other people that are surrounding him, his friends. I just I never really cared if Will was going to come back. Right. But like saving Private Ryan, Private Ryan doesn't show up till the movie's halfway over. Like it's OK that we don't know Will that well because the way I feel Will and the way I get to know Will is through his absence. That the I care about Will and getting him back, not because I'm scared for Will, but because I'm scared that his mother will lose a child, that his brother will lose a brother, that his friends will lose to some person important to them. Like, it, we talked a little bit about it in Twin Peaks with Laura Palmer mm-hmm. that, you know, we didn't really get a lot of who Laura was. And Laura wasn't really a great person. But the people around her are so devastated by her absence that that invests me in it. And I think that's kind of what I felt with Will was it's okay that 
I mean, Will's just like a, a dorky little kid who's kind of awkward and gets made fun of. And that's all I know. But I still care about him because of his relationship to other people. Well, and I think that they try and push, there are other elements of the narrative that try and push and remind people what the absence of that kind of uh, person is like, you know, when you, when you lose a child. And so I think th- there are ways for me that that's successful. Like when we see um, Will's fort towards the end of the, of the show and it says friends welcome, you know, that like this is a person instead of keep out, you know, this is a person who, who's very open and thoughtful and honest. That moment at the beginning of the show where, where he does, he tells his friend what actually happened with the die roll. Like we understand that he's honest he's a pure person and so for me that that was valuable I, I think that the show gets at some really interesting things in terms of dynamics between as as you're growing up you know it, it talks a lot about bullying it talks about what it's like to start developing your personality and the kinds of morals that you have you know I loved Barb and everybody talks about Barb uh, justice for Barb justice for Barb right but part of the thing that's so interesting about her is that she's a character who's trying to figure out who she is and where she draws the line and what's acceptable to her and what's not and and I thought that kind of the fumbling and the awkwardness between her kind of going like hey you're just gonna leave me here you know Mm -hmm. like what is this about like what does our friendship mean to you it felt so truthful and so real to me. And so there was so much about this show, not just its 80s aesthetic, because I was born in the late 80s, so I don't remember a lot of this particular stuff. But just I felt it was so real to me, you know, that these people were not perfect. I love that, you know, the first thing we see Hooper do is like, you know, he's drunk on his couch he wakes up and smokes a cigarette half naked and you know this is the sheriff in the town like there's there's just such duality to these characters and there's such depth to them i'm excited to see how that gets explored throughout season 2 so i i can understand some of your your frustration with the show cuz i i think you are right there are some things about it that probably are too evocative and i think particularly in this culture where we are constantly being sold our childhoods over and over mm-hmm. and over again it's worth sort of being defensive about that and asking like is this really necessary is it <laughs> you know and i felt like with glow it didn't ever earn it for me but stranger things like uh, just seeing these people relate to each other and the interconnectivity that they had that was enough for me and i think it was a really powerful show and i think it really gets at the heart of some of the the concern and the anxiety that's palpable in the air um, in this current political climate, you know, about how people interact with each other, how knowledge is distributed. And so for me, it was a really important, significant show in that way. Uh, So, yeah, so that's what I thought, uh, which so I'll give it an A. I'm going to grade it and give it an A. That's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, uh, Scott, I'm also going to give it an A. I'm going to echo what Jessica said. I also acknowledge that Ashley has a lot of very good <laughs> points and is right in a lot of ways. But. You're pandering. <laughs> please forgive me. Um, no, but I, I think, but I think that I think it does subvert a lot of that stuff. And I think it is very important. And the relationships between the characters are so strong. And that's the heart of the show. So I'm, I'm going to give it an A too. Okay. Um, I'm going to give it a C plus and, and it's because 
No, I had a professor in my graduate study that always used to say, if something is very popular and I do not enjoy it, I assume that there is a flaw in me that prevents me from seeing what everybody else is seeing. And I think that that's where I'm at with this because I did really, I really tried you guys. I went online, I read articles that were rave reviews about it. I read articles that were critical of it. And, and I... I just never cared enough about the story and I kept waiting for episodes to be over. And I think maybe the sci-fi thing just isn't for me. Maybe that's what lost me. Maybe it was my personal feelings about Winona Ryder. I, I don't know. <laughs> it could have been one of many things that led to me not necessarily fitting into the zeitgeist in terms of how people feel about this show. But I just like, I don't, I don't care about it. I don't necessarily care about season two, and I probably won't watch most of it. it it's Winona, by the way. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've said that twice. You have. Uh, okay. So, uh, right. So, I, uh, yeah. I'm trying to, like, cope with the fact that Ashley hated Stranger Things. That's <laughs> why I'm flubbing. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, I watched Rick and Morty. Uh, yes. What? I, viewers, I did make a very Sisyphean bargain with her. Uh, Sisyphean in that I pushed the Star Trek rock up the hill and fall down. I agreed to watch the entirety of Star Trek, Buffy, and Veronica Mars to get Jessica to watch Rick and Morty. Yes. So I watched it. Uh, I have, I'm midway through season three. I haven't finished Whoa. all the way. So uh, I just have a couple of episodes left. And uh, yeah, it's Rick and Morty. Um, <laughs> nope, you have to have an opinion. <laughs> okay, so my opinion is that it's a toxic masculine power fantasy that's kind of funny. <laughs> that's my whole opinion about Rick and Morty. So Yeah, it's not dealing with any overarching philosophical issues at all. It, or existentialism, or subverting that masculinity. It Maybe not as effectively as it should, but it still does it. I, I would disagree. I don't think it actually ever gets there. So, uh, Rick is the coolest guy. No, that he's, he's a disaster. He's a, he's a disastrous Rick human being. Rick is the coolest guy that has ever existed. Nope. Yes. The coolest guy that ever existed doesn't try to kill himself midway through, through season two. Uh... He, yeah, he, okay, so we, <clears throat> we'll have to talk we'll about have this to have another time. Saved for our special Rick and Morty episode? <laughs> Perhaps. He said hopefully. So um, we'll have to wait until right. the show's over okay. before we can Fair talk enough. about it. But Cool. So this week I'm watching The Mayor, oh. which is a new show from ABC. Uh, it has Leah Michelle in it. And basically what it is, is Courtney Rose is a up-and-coming rapper in sort of a sort of less affluent California city. Um, and um, basically he runs for mayor as a publicity stunt to get his album sales up. He has a debate with the current mayor uh, who's on like the city council, like, or the guy who's running for mayor against him, David Spade. And he's kind of not taking it seriously, but he, David Spade starts throwing shots at him. He starts talking like, well, Hey, you know, this needs to be cleaned up. This is a problem. And he really gets the crowd behind him and he ends up winning. And it sort of chronicles sort of a guy who's coming from the people and more down to earth of like, hey, you talk a big game, but like, here's what's important to me. And sort of this guy trying to navigate being a mayor when he really just wanted to be a rapper. And it's actually interesting. Like, I thought it was just going to be a dumb comedy, but it actually talks about some interesting social issues. Mm -hmm. So this week, um, and I swear this isn't cursing, but I'm watching a show called Shit's Creek. 
which is excellent. It's spelled S-C-H-I-T-T-S. And it's the name of a town. And ultimately, what the it's a Canadian show, actually. It's got a few seasons out already. It just got on Netflix, so it's getting a little bit of traction here. But it's about this deeply affluent, like, West Coast uh, Bel Air family who loses everything except for the fact that they once, as a joke, bought this podunk town in the middle of nowhere called Schitt's Creek. And they have to go live in a motel there. And it, it's totally mindless. Like it's not necessary. I don't think it's doing anything particularly innovative. But the humor, how the show, how the show is using humor through the characters that it's putting in these situations, like I bust out laughing way more times per episode than I ever thought I would watching a show called Shit's Creek. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. Uh, well, thanks for joining us on uh, this week of Universe of TV. I'm Jessica K. Richards. I'm Ashley Zanter. And I'm Scott Nielsen. And this is Universe of TV. Make sure to check us out on Facebook or Twitter by liking us at Universe of TV Podcast, or you can email us at universetvpodcast at gmail.com with your recommendations for future episodes.